Okay. Thank you, for everybody, to everybody for joining again. We're continuing our Shi'or on Jewish liturgy, and we have to start making our way through the Sidor. However, the past two classes, we focused very much on methodology and on basic history, honestly. Uh, in the first class, we, we looked through the basics of studying Jewish liturgy, the different approaches one could take. And in the second class, we looked at the history of the construct of Jewish liturgy. What what became what we call today a Siddur? How do we know that there's a Seder at Tefillah? How did that entire um, body of literature come to be as one whole unit? And when was it finally canonized? That's what we focused on last week. And we learned a little bit about skills for how to approach the study of the Siddur, especially when we're looking at the early history of the Siddur and the early history of, a, of, of the liturgy as a unit, all the different... Um, knowledge that we would need to have as for that that progression from the earliest times all the way to early medieval times. We didn't really discuss printing so much, but um, we'll save individual nuschais and individual rights for specific tefillahs so as we get to them. I did I, I did forget to mention last week when we were speaking about the Siddur, a famous um, tshuva from the Shiboli Haleket, where he, this is I believe in the late 13th century, he he discusses the permissibility of praying from a sitter to begin with. And I thought that was really funny that uh, the the can do bring this. Is it mutter to daven from a sitter whatsoever? And that's what that that's the kind of language you see in the earlier Ishainim and then much later you see in the uh in the Achreinim, some Paiskim using language like a person should always be sure to have Kavana from a sitter. And all the Paiskim are uh, very enthusiastic about using a sitter and sometimes instructive about using a sitter. But in, in the time of the Rishonim, it wasn't so cut and dry. Uh, using a sitter might have been considered to be uh, illegal or or not halachic. Okay, so that's just something I for, it's something cute I forgot to mention last week, that the attitudes did change from medieval times onwards. All right, so tonight, as the slide suggests, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, it is also available uh, on YouTube as Tefillah Unpacked, or if you're listening on Spotify, there's also a video option to view this year as a video, and you could go through the slides with us. But the first slide, as you'll see on your screen, suggests that we are going to be looking tonight at the bracha. Before we approach Birch Zashachar, Shemayna Esrei, all of the tefillahs that we have in the Siddur, we have to um, approach and understand the word bracha. So if you're not coming from, if you're not Orthodox, you don't have a background in Jewish prayer, this is going to be a, you're going to come to this year with a, with a, with a significant disadvantage because the bracha is the, almost the de facto, the default sub rubric of every single uh, Jewish prayer. The bracha is, is the atomic block of every single uh, Jewish prayer. And to define it loosely, we, we define a bracha as almost any, any prayer where the formulation is marked with an emphasis on the word baruch and it's and it's uh, directed towards Hashem. The Be'ez Reishchaf typically means blessed. And when someone uses the word Baruch to begin, to introduce, or to end a prayer, we typically call that a bracha. The English word benediction doesn't easily convey what a bracha is in Judaism. Someone coming from another religion or from, from nowhere who would hear the, the bracha translated as a benediction wouldn't necessarily get the gist of it because it, that could mean something very Christian or it could mean an utterance of good wishes. It could mean a certain type of ceremony. 
um, some some type of benefit. But the, the word benediction doesn't relate to this Jewish construct of a bracha. For us, the construct of a bracha is all-encompassing for prayers that can be very short, prayers that can be very long, prayers that are statutory that we have to say, and prayers that we want to say. So the bracha is, if you, one has ever become Jewish, you, from not being religious to becoming religious, or from not being Jewish to becoming Jewish, you will find that you are saying a hundred brachas every day. The bracha is really a, 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 an atomic block of our prayer system, of the entire Jewish liturgy. So understanding how the bracha came to be is the focus of tonight's um, shiur. So when we look at the bracha, we realize that it's the most, today at least, in our present times, it is the de facto formula. It's the, When we want to say a prayer, a statutory one, or even a, a one of praise, typically in, 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 in halacha, the de facto formula, the formula that was used since the Tanaic and the Amoraic times, since the time of the Tanaim, uh, meaning uh, antiquity, late antiquity, and Amiraim, it always was a bracha. So much so that in the time of the Tanaim and in the time of the Amiraim, they didn't have the word that we have today, tefillah or tefilos, to mean prayers. When we today say um, we're going to say it, we're going to say tefilot, we mean we're, we're going to say prayers. Um, and in their, today, if we say we're going to say tefillah, we mean davening. In their time, the word for tefillah, um, or tefillah, uh, the word tefillah meant shmona esrei. That's in their times, the word tefillah meant shmona esrei. And the word brachos meant what we would call today davening or tefillos. That's why the, the mesechta is called meseches brachos, or why the Amoraim use a sentence like kotve brachot kesorfei Torah. One who writes the, 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 the prayers is like one who, who burns, burns Torah, because their word for prayers was brachos. And in their time, when the prayers were still more primitive, the the under the clear understanding was that prayers were basically made up of blessings of brachot. So we must investigate how is it that the bracha came to be such a de facto prayer formula, such a de facto formula for prayer in Judaism. What do I mean by de facto? Well, it is the default in in contradistinction to many other options. There are other options. It is possible for us to say a yehi ratzon. It is possible to say uh, hamakom. It is possible to say a moda'ani or a hodu la'ashem. There's so many other ways that we could introduce a tefillah. Why does it have to start baruch atah Hashem? And why was it so supreme that it was chosen by the Anshik Nesses Hagadola or by Yerman Gamliel as, the, as the, the, the primary building block of the Shemona Esrei? Shemona Esrei literally means Shemona Esrei brachos. Why did they choose this? Why didn't they choose, why didn't they begin every tefillah with hodu la'ashem kitov? Okay, so let's trace the bracha or the idea of baruch, blessing, back to the Torah itself. So what I'm trying to convey here with this slide here, with this slide here, is that bracha begins as a big biblical concept. When we see the concept of bracha in the Torah, there's two ways we, that we experience the idea of bracha. One way is a conference of grace or power downward to a subject. So let's look at some of the first times it's used in the Torah. And God blessed the fish of the sea, right? Be fertile and increase and fill the earth and master it. I'm sorry, no, that's uh, that's Hashem blessing uh, man, right? God, and God blessed man that he should go, that he should be fruitful and multiply and dominate and rule 
the earth below him. Or as Hashem tells Avram, that I, for, I will bestow my blessing upon you and make your descendants more numerous as the stars and the sands of the sea. So we see that the, the first um, meaning of the word bracha is a verb. It means that I will bestow uh, benevolence, grace, some form of power downward upon you, and you're going to receive that uh, blessing. So the first use of the word of the word bracha in the Torah is used in the form of a verb. But if we move a little further, we find many more psukim where it's used in an opposite sense. We have it from going from the from downward up, where a person is using it to describe almost as an adjective or as some sort of description or some sort of praise of Hashem. We have, here's just four examples where a human speaker is using the word Baruch, Baruch Hashem in order to say, blessed be Hashem. So this here, these four psukim here, introduce us to something that's very strange about the brachos, and that is that never in the Torah do we see a Jewish person who is Jewish from birth or a native Israelite speaker say the words Baruch Hashem. These four psukim that I brought to you were Malki Tzedek, Noach, Eliezer, and Yisro. They were Geirim. They were, Malki Tzedek was a guy. Yes, Noach wasn't Jewish. Eliezer and Yisro were both Geirim. For some reason, it is never a Jewish speaker, a native Israelite, a, Hebrew, a native Hebrew speaker who uses the words Baruch Hashem Kel Elyon. And we're going to have to circle back to that because this is, it, it's, it's interesting that the Torah does this. It's interesting that the Torah never shows us a Jewish person saying Baruch Hashem. And perhaps one is going to have to account for it with some sort of theological excuse. You might have to say that um, you might have to say that it did come from non-Jewish sources, but we just conglomerated it into Judaism. That's one approach you could take. You could say that, again, it's some sort of coincidence that we never see a Jewish person saying a bracha. Or we could delve possibly deeper and look into a little bit about how Semitic languages work. And perhaps this is a, a, a this is a, a word form which is used in all Semitic languages. And we're going to analyze this a little bit later. Um, but please note from these psukim that the first people, the first times we see in the Torah that um, the words Baruch Hashem are used, it is not from pure Hebrew speakers. These are people who speak more than one Semitic language who are saying Baruch Hashem Elokei Adoni Abraham. So this is the earliest form we have for a blessing directed towards Hashem. Okay, so... The next part of the piece of this puzzle to tracing how the bracha became, uh, how the bracha evolves throughout the time of the Torah is that we see that at, once we leave Hamish Shei Torah and we get to the Nevi'im, very often the Nevi'im will bring a language of Baruch Hashem as well. But they'll do it uh, as Jews directly towards Hashem. Baruch Hashem, Olam is the famous one that David Melach said. Uh, also, Baruch Atah Hashem, those two are from David. And then in Devarim, we also have and I bring Devarim not because it's one of the Nevi'im, but because in a backhanded way, the Torah tells us that we, the Jewish people, also have to bless Hashem. Birchus HaMazon is one of those cases where the Torah tells us that, yes, you, Jewish people, should praise Hashem. So even if you wanted to say 
that let's say the bracha doesn't come from uh, you know a, a Jewish place. It's a, it's a non-Jewish place. You can't really say that because the pasuk in Devarim says, uh, Why would one ar- want to argue that a bracha is not a natively Jewish thing? I, I don't know. You could say, for example, that that blessing Hashem is uh, is theologically complicated, as we're going to see later in the shir. How could one bless Hashem? And therefore, it could be that it's only a a form of um, the uh, regression, not regression, that um, uh, permission, that Hashem is giving us permission to praise him. And we'll explore that a little bit sooner. But if we look at all the, the psukim where we see Nevi'im or we see speakers in Tanakh praising Hashem and doing a brachat Hashem, that clearly became the prototype for all of those sentences in the Torah became the prototype for when Chazal were going to create a bracha for Berches HaMazon. It is logical to think that when the Chachamim were coming along, were, had to compose or supervise the composition of brachos for Berches HaMazon, which is the first deraisa for a bracha, it would tend, it would be logical to assume that they would look to the Bible, they would look to the Torah for prototypes. They would look for to, to, the, to the Torah for um, forms that they could use that they would replicate in the um, in the Berches Hamazon, and we know from a Gemara and a Masorah that we have that in the Beis Hamikdash, this I'm going to point with my mouse over here. Baruch Hashem We know that in the Beis Hamikdash, the Gemara teaches us that that was the opening for Brachos. They didn't say Baruch Atah Hashem Alokeinu Melach Halam the way we do. Instead, they would say Baruch Hashem Alokei Somei Halam Viada Olam Asher Kedushanu Sosu B'Sivanu or something similar to that. The form. The liturgical form of the bracha underwent in a, a an evolution from the time of the Antichrist Zagdola all the way down to the time of the Amoraim. So this is the earliest information that we're working with. And I should just make a note here that we do find that every time Chazal, every time Chazal um, write a bracha, they intentionally use Lashon HaMikra. They use Lashon HaKodesh. It is clear beyond day that Chazal are not using Lashon HaMishnah when they write Tefilos or when they write what they would have called Brachos. And there could be a number of reasons of this, but let me first clarify myself. There's a distinction between Lashon HaMikra and Lashon HaMishnah. Just like we today have modern Hebrew and old Hebrew, in their time as well, there was biblical Hebrew and there was Mishnaic Hebrew. Mishnaic Hebrew was a slightly evolved form. It had infections from other languages like Latin, Greek, um, um, Aramaic, all sorts of different languages, a uh, Persian that were added into Mishnaic Hebrew, but the Chachamim wanted to keep all the tefillahs they were going to do in pure Lashon HaKodesh. This is something that the Rambam and the Rapsadi going no- both noticed immediately that the Chachamim were not using Mishnaic Hebrew. By and large, with very few exceptions, they used Lashon HaMikra rather than Lashon HaMishnah. So there are three good reasons for this. Number one is because they wanted it to remain holy. The, the Lashon Kodesh was considered to be more holy. And because we're, we're talking to Hashem and it's a praise uh, speech to a, 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 in a what's, how do I say this? A dialogue or a, even a monologue towards Hashem himself. Therefore, they wanted to speak in the holiest, the most purest tongue. That's one reason. The other reason you could say is because they used it for the poetic flair, um, just using a, a more, an older form of saying, an older way of saying things would be more poetic. That's a, that's another theory you could throw out there, that that's why they preferred Lashon HaKodesh, or the older way of saying things. But the probably the most convincing is 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 something put forward by 
I don't remember who. This is not a lot of this work was done by somebody named Moshe Barasher, who's a who's a uh, Hebrew linguist uh, who works for the uh, Hebrew Academy of, of the Hebrew language. He did a lot of dissection of how the how the Chachamim make this distinction between brach, tefillah and 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 Mishnah and Medrash and all the different languages. But somebody also suggested, I think it was an anthropologist, he said that using archaic language is a is an incredibly useful feature for liturgy. And this is something that the Christians borrowed from us much later, where you don't just use, let's say, modern English to say your, your prayers. You would use old English to say your prayers. And the way we today don't use modern Hebrew, by, by and large, to say tefillot, we use older Hebrew to say tefillot. Why does this help from a ritual perspective? It helps because psychologically, this makes people believe or figure that the words they were saying were not just invented or innovated by some human, the words were created. And this is a psychological trick when you write tefillos in archaic language to make the tefillah feel, feel more sublime, where you feel like it is a part of something created, not something just uh, haphazardly invented. So that's a, that's a very interesting theory. And it's, it's also interesting that later religions borrow this from us, that when they say their prayers, they say it in older forms of their language rather than in their, in their current forms. And they keep it that way because it feels much more sublime and much more fixed. And it, it lends to the fixity of it as well. I'm sure everybody has their own ideas, but uh, these, these are just three I came up with uh, that, that I uh, compiled for the moment. Okay, let's move a little further. There are, as I mentioned earlier, besides Baruch HaTashem, Elokeinu Melech and similar wordings, and Baruch HaShem Elokei Yisrael, there are also other prayers in the Torah that are mandatory, such as, uh, let's call it Vidoy Meiser, right? We have Higadeti Hayom LaHashem Elokecha Kibasi Al Arz HaSher Nishba HaShem LaVoseinu Latzeit Lanu. We have Shema Yisrael HaShem Elokeinu Shem that's a mandatory prayer. We have Birchus Kehanim, which is a mandatory bracha. There are other ways that the Torah introduces to us and other formulas that we could use, like Higad uh, Tiyayom, we could start a we could start a prayer of Shema Yisrael. There are other, there are other prayers that and formulas that we could begin our prayers with. So why is it? Let's move back to this. Why is it that Chazal chose the bracha for the, chose the bracha formula for Shmona Esrei, um, or for the Birchas Kriya Shema, and for all the brachos they they did, and not for the Hiratzon um, or for the Modaani? Why didn't they choose uh, Hodu Hashem? Why didn't they choose any of that? So. The main work on this uh, began by Rabbi Yosef Heinemann. Rabbi Yosef Heinemann was a Muslim of the Mir Yeshiva. He learned in the Mir Yeshiva in Europe before the war. And he was lucky enough to escape Territ Yisrael and was one of the early founders of the Hebrew University there. And he spent uh, probably decades teaching there in the Hebrew University. And he did a lot of the early work on on uh, well, I'm going to hold up one of the books here. Hatfila Betkufa Satanam Vamai Rayim. So his contribution is the crux of the shir tonight. Basically, chapters two and three in his, in his Hebrew book are, are uh, lay a lot of the technical foundations for understanding the bracha. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to begin completely with him. Let's begin a little bit outside. Let's begin a little bit outside of the topic. So let's, let's, let, let's just use our own svara to, together. Let's just think, why would the Chachamim use before we approach his work? Let's just think with our own brains. Why would the Chachamim use Baruch HaTashem instead of using Yihiratzon or Moda'ani? So the most obvious reason is because the Bracha formula is the most flexible. If you use a Yihiratzon, that's going to be a petition. If you begin with a Moda'ani, that's going to be a praise. 
if you begin with a hamakom, that's probably going to be something uh, grieving. Most of those introductory formulas are very specific in their vertical. But Baruch Hashem is very, very flexible. You could continue in the second person. You could continue in the third person. You could say, you could say, um, you could talk, speak Ata Hashem Elokeinu, or you could say Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Israel. You could continue with uh, the past tense, Sha'asanisim, right? Or you could continue with the present tense. You could say Asher uh, Kiddushanu. You could also go to the, I'm sorry, to the yeah present tense, like Goel Yisrael. You could do, um, that's actually, actually called an active active participle, and you could do a praise like Asher Kiddushanu. I'm sorry, you could do present tense like um we do future tenses, you do present tense, which is an active participle, like all yourself. Uh, what I'm trying to say is here, my words are jumbling out of my mouth. I'm sorry. But my point is that because you could do past tense, future tense, present tense, and all of the different flexible ways of using this introduction, therefore they chose this simply because it was the most uh, universal. And when they were going to choose one that was also going to be used for the Asher Kedushanus of the world, like all the Birch Mitzvos, this was also just the introduction which worked most grammatically. And if you have a, a working knowledge of Hebrew, um, even if you don't know the intricacies of the grammar, grammar, you'll probably understand that this is the easiest uh, formulaic entrance into the brachas. But that doesn't, that only explains why we start with the word baruch and we incorporate the name Hashem. It doesn't tell us how we got to baruch ata Hashem Elokeinu melech haolam. How did we get to those words? Those, I believe, eight words. How did that come to be? Okay, so the formula of the bracha wasn't always that. Let, let, let's just start with that. We can't retroject our uh, current uh, state of affairs on how it was in the time of the Tanam uh, or the Amirayim. We know for sure that in the time of the Tanaim and the Amirayim, they did not have Baruch HaTashem Elokeinu Melech as a universal prayer. It just can't be. We cannot. We can't project every Gemara that's speaking about a bracha. We can't retroject our own ideas on every Gemara and, and, and try to forend for it as if they were saying the bracha the way we do it. First of all, we know Befeirish from the Gemara, as I mentioned, that in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, which is a little bit before the Tanaim, they didn't say, Baruch HaTashem Elokein Malchalam. They, they were using Baruch HaTashem Elokei Yisrael. Furthermore, we know from the Shemayin Esrei, which at the latest was fixed in the second century, the Shemayin Esrei doesn't start Baruch HaTashem Elokein Ha'olam. The Shemayin Esrei was, was fixed in the, in, at the latest at the 130s, but probably much earlier. And none of the Gersites of the, the Shemayin Esrei start Baruch HaTashem Elokein Ha'olam. They all start Baruch HaTashem Elokein Therefore, we know for sure that in their time, in the time of the Tanaim and the Amaraim, we did not have Boruch Ata Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. So if we look at this Gemara here that I'm showing you on the screen, the second y, the third wide line at the end of the line, Amarav, right? Kol bracha she'ein bahaskaris Hashem ain't a bracha. Any bracha that doesn't have God's name in it is not a bracha. Rabbi Yechanan Amar and Rabbi Yechanan says, Kol bracha she'ein bahmalchus ain't a bracha. Any bracha that doesn't say Elokeinu Melech Olam is also not a bracha. These are third century Amorim, people who lived in the end of the of the two hundreds, who are fixing the halachas regarding saying a bracha. Now, again, the we cannot say that we cannot dangerously retroject and say no. They're just you know stating a fact. Everyone said Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam in their time. Um, and and they're just stating a fact that if you forgot or bedieved, then you wouldn't know. That's not that's not what's happening here at all. When Rav and Rebbechan in the third century are saying kol bracha she'ein ba she'ein ba haskar shame or she'ein ba that doesn't have malchus, they are 
they are, what's the word? Approach, not approaching. They are responding to a reality. In the third century, there were people formulating brachas from the other sects of, of Klai Yisrael who were not using the standard formula that they consider, consider to be standard. Um, this is all uh, re in regards to Lechatzchila. Uh, there are, as the Rambam says, there are cases of B'diyeved where you would be Yaitzeh. And there's also Yerushalmi in Perak uh, Tess of Brachis, which says that Rav also added the word Ata. That Rav says that you can't just say Baruch Hashem Alokinu Melachalam, you have to say Ata. And it, it seems that in this, in the third century, they were setting down that of all these various formula, formulas that are being used, these are the ones you have to use. So the Amirayim are responding to a reality, which is that there is fluidity in their time, but they are saying that these are the lechatchilas you have to say, uh, probably the B'diavids as well, but these are the, the halachic norms that you have to follow in order for it to be a bracha. This is what we would call uh, the matzpeah shetavu chachamim. They are the chachamim um, who are fixing this matbeah, we don't see the Tanaim telling us this is the matbeah, but we see Rav and Rabbi Yechanan saying, no, 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 this is the matbeah. So it, we could discuss whether or not Rabbi Yechanan agrees with Rav, if Rav agrees with Rabbi Yechanan. We could all we discuss all of that academically, but it's going to get into the nitty gritty. Um, clearly, in their time, there was discussion about what was the correct formula. Beautiful. Now, Besides for assuming that, and that would be convenient, just assuming that there was discussion and uh, confliction in this time, we could also look towards um, other evidence from outside the Mishnah, from outside the Gemara, from outside uh, Tanakh. There, are, there is other evidence that during this era, there was a fluidity and a, there was a fluidity and an evolution of the Bracha formula. So, one of these bodies of evidence comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you don't know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a major archaeological find that were discovered in the 40s and 50s. These were scrolls that were found buried like Shamos in, in uh, cisterns and in, in these caves in, in the Dead Sea region in Eretz Yisrael. And the, you're looking here at a picture of Cave 4. In these caves... Um, by chance, uh, certain adventurers found many uh, ancient scrolls from antiquity. They're dating from almost 200 years before the Common Era till maybe 100 years after the Common Era. And it appears that, let me just admit somebody, I'm sorry. It appears that in their time, um, in the time of, sorry, in this area, there was a sect in this area called the Qumran, it was a sect of Isiim or, or the Asenes, the, the Asenes sect. They had their own little brand of Judaism. It's very similar to the Tzedokim in its own way. They were determinists. They were, they were interesting. However, whether or not they were interesting, they had many, many writings that they put in Shamos and, and st stuck into caves. And it was a treasure, ch a, a treasure chest for archaeologists and for scholars for decades, uh, for many decades since then. The problem is with archaeology is that sometimes Archaeologists can be very gatekeeper-y and a lot of politics and greed gets involved. So unfortunately, not all of the Dead Sea Scrolls are available uh, online. They're not all digitized. Very many of them are gatekeep uh, are gatekept by the Book of the Shrine in Eretz Yisrael. There's a lot of politics involved. You don't even want to know. But anyway, in Cave 1, we have, this is, here, here is a scroll in Cave 1 of the Qumran. This is called one, scroll 1QH, meaning Cave 1 from the Qumran. 
uh, scroll number H. Why was it called H? Because Hodayot, these are the, the Thanksgiving scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls. In these, uh, in this collection of scrolls, we have many prayers that were written as a thanksgiving to Hashem. And these were very, very useful for trying to, de to deconstruct the forms of bracha that were used before the turn of the, of the millennium and also a little bit after because they have so many interesting forms of bracha in there that would have been in use in the times of Tanaim. You cannot, even if you say this is a different sect of Judaism, you cannot deny that there would have been a, a, um, a, a cross-fertilization or an influence from the Rabbanim to the Isseum or from the Isseum to other sects of Klai You can't deny that. So clearly these forms that these that these people of these sects are using have been borrowed from a common source behind them, either a common source that the Rabbanim were using or that um, they were getting this from the Rabbanim. But their own uh, their own versions, I'm just going to read from here because I don't have the actual uh, pictures. I don't think I have, but you'll see here, this is one of the one of the documents, one of the columns, Baruch Atah Kel, right? You can see that in front of you. I'm just going to read from Heinemann's list. We have Baruch Atah Keli Hapoteach, is that the one I'm looking at now? Baruch Ata Keli Apoteach Ledea Lev Avdecha. We have Baruch Ata Kel Hadeo Tasher Hachinota Vatifka Bavadecha. Baruch Ata Hashem Ashanatata Lila Vadecha Sechal Dea Lavin Beniflotecha. Let me see if there's any others I can I can find now. Baruch Kel Yisrael Bekol Machshavot Kodesho. Various different readings of the Baruch Kel. And this, for this reason, the Qumran scrolls, scrolls were very, very useful in trying to peel apart the layers of every century, it was useful for trying to peel apart layers for when the Baruch got put in there, when did the Atta get put in there, when, when did they start using Baruch Atta, in, and I wish I had a picture of this, but in scroll five on line 20, there's a whole list of, of thanksgivings to Hashem, and they begin with Odecha Hashem, and by one of them, by the Odecha Ado Shem, the scribe crosses out Odecha Hashem and he replaces it with Baruch Ata Hashem, which shows you that there was there was a new formula. They're like, no, 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 let's scratch it. Not Odecha Hashem. We're going to replace it with Baruch Ata Hashem. This is the one that's becoming standard. This is a fascinating thing to see something that ancient and to see like from their time, somebody rectifying and correcting a bracha to say, no, this is the standard formula. This is what the rabbi said to do. So I just, I love that. Whether or not they were from, not from Qumran, Whatever it is, it's just a fascinating thing to see. I wish I wish I could pull it up digitally to show it to you. Unfortunately, you'd have to take a flight to show to see it. The next um, piece of evidence we have is tantalizing, um, as far as archaeological evidence goes. Um, this is the famous Dura Europo synagogue. Uh, the synagogue is this synagogue is in Syria. Unfortunately, ISIS bombed the heck out of this synagogue and most likely uh, nobody's been able to reach the region since because of the Syrian civil war but most likely the Dura Europa synagogue is destroyed unfortunately so what is the history of the synagogue very simple um this Dura Europos was a, a town in Syria by the Euphrates it was a garrison city and a trade city and it was right there on the border between the Roman Empire and the Sassanid Empire so when the Sassanids came to invade the, I believe it was the Sassanids came to invade, the synagogue was built up against the city wall. Therefore, the, the um, Romans uh, came, with the, came with the army to prepare the defenses of the city to try to beat back the Sassanids. To do that, they had to bury the 
um, they had to bury the synagogue with with uh, with with dirt and sand in order to build up a, a ramp for fortifications. And so they moved everybody out of the city and they're like, guys, there's a war coming. Get out of the city. We're taking battle stations here. And because they covered this synagogue in in sand and in dirt, it was perfectly preserved. Well, not almost perfectly, as you can see from these pictures, with all these beautiful frescoes and these uh, inscriptions all over them. It's it really unbelievable. And this synagogue is from the third century, right when, what did we notice? Remember I said in the Ushalmi, uh, Rav says that you have to say Atta. This is in the third century, the time of Rav. There's an inscription on this wall. And again, I can't find it because archaeologists don't really, uh, are not so good at documenting things for the public. But there's an inscription here on one of these walls where it says Baruch, then it has an Aleph, and it says Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. So that's so frustrating from a research perspective. Because what is the Aleph? Is it Ata or is it Hashem? Like, is this Baruch Ata Elokeinu Melech HaOlam or is this Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam? We'll never know. Um, maybe, uh, perhaps ISIS bombed it to kingdom come and we just don't, we'll never, ever, ever know. But we see in the third century, there were Jews who were davening with the um, with the formula of Baruch something, Baruch, very, something very similar to Baruch Atta Hashem Elokeinu Melech So that is, in its own way, is kind of exciting. You, we remember, it, it might be um, tempting to think that on one fine day, um, as, uh, as 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 Heinemann puts it, it's tempting to think that one fine day, Rav came along and said, "Oh, we have to say Baruch Ata," and then suddenly the entire Klai is saying Baruch Ata. That's just not how history works. You can't have Jews all the way from Alexandria up all the way to Aram Soba and to uh, towns in 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 Syria. They're not one fine day just going to start all saying Baruch Atashem Elkeinu Melachalam. Even if the Tanaim and Amiram start fixing a matzbeah of the bracha, it takes time for people to accept all of these rulings as halachic. Some people might follow Rabbi Yechanan, some people might follow Rav, some people might follow Shmuel in the, in the Yerushalmi. So not everybody, uh, you know, not everybody accepted Rav's halacha as normative right away. Therefore, when we find inscriptions like this, it's helpful to peel back to, to recognize that there are layers to the evolution and Baruch HaTashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, as that standard uh, beginning formula, hasn't always existed. A very interesting point was was um, was also brought up by, by let me just see what's next. Yeah, um, uh, Heinemann also brings up one, one very interesting point, and that is that Rabbi Yechanan in the third century is saying that you have to say Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. You have to add Shemu Mal, you have to add Malchus to a bracha. You have to say that God is the king of the world. So why is that? Heinemann says, in his view, it's probably because of imperial cult worship, meaning that the Roman Empire had this very interesting religion where, starting from the times of Augustus, um, Augustus believed, was trying to, Augustus, who was the emperor in the first century, he wanted to move Rome as a government from a republic to a basically a monarchy. Uh, it was called the Principate. And if he was going to become a monarch, you have to develop some kind of, you know, some kind of story to justify why you are entitled to rule over everybody else. So like every monarch, he comes up with some, uh, what do they call it? The divine or manif uh, not manifest destiny. There's a word about, well, there's a word for it. I learned it in history class, <laughs> like we all did, like some justification for why he, the king, has a divine um What's the word like endowment or div divine rights to rule over his subjects? So Augustus's idea was to 
to basically turn Roman religion into an imperial religion. And, you know, the, the, the monarch is a god or a type of god. He's a type of sun god, son, something like that. So it became the official religion. It became an official policy of the Roman Empire later. And I think it was the second century that this was the, the official uh, dogma of the, of the state that the, that the king was was the, the Melech. And so according to Heinemann, it must be that um, the Jews were, this was a reaction to this. And they're saying, no, the, the, Yidin, the Yidin were like, we are going to say Hashem is Melech HaElam, Hashem is the king of the world. And we're not going to bow to any Roman idea that we're going to call the king of the land, uh, the king of the earth. That's not going to happen. But there is a scholar named Rabbi Ruven Kimmelman. He runs a shul, a Sephardi shul in, um, in Brookline, Massachusetts. He also works in Brandeis University where he teaches you know, Jewish theology and liturgy as well. So Rabbi Kimmelman came along in 2005 and wrote a very comprehensive study about Baruch Shem Kvoid Malchusei and that form of adding Malchus to our tefillah. And his, he doesn't really like Heinemann's idea here because in his view, the Melech Olam part, it doesn't make any sense that they would be doing this to counter the Romans. First of all, because the Jews had an exemption. The Jews had a legal exemption in the, under the Roman Empire that they did not have to worship the um, – they were not required to worship the Roman emperor as God. They, they, they had gotten this exemption way early. The Jews are smart. Jews are fast. They got an exemption really early. We're not going to uh, have to say that, that the Roman emperor is our king. That's first of all. Second of all, the Christians who lived in the same era don't have this in their liturgy. And if the Christians don't have it in this their liturgy, wouldn't they – um, have been under the same threat, like they were monotheists to some degree at the time. So if they're monotheistic and they didn't believe that the emperor was the was the god of the world, then wouldn't they have come under the same threat? Wouldn't they have responded in a very similar way by saying that their god was the king of the world? And because we don't see this response in Christian liturgy either, it's not likely that that the the Jewish um, that that the Jewish liturgy, the when the Chachamim were were mandating alakinu melech haolam, it's not probably not because of an imperial cult or an imperial cult religion. So therefore, Rabbi Kimmelman says, most likely this is an internal development, that most likely this is something very internal to Chazal, that for some internal reason within the Jewish people, they saw a need to, to reinforce the idea of Malchus Shemayim. And he demonstrates that through many areas of tefillah, of, 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 besides Baruch Shem Kvayim Malchusai, let me just add, uh, admit somebody. Sorry. Besides the idea of Baruch Shem Kavayim Malchusei Le'elam there are other areas in Tzvila where we find the Chachamim trying to reinforce the idea of Malchus Shemayim and Kabbalas Ol Malchus Shemayim. That's that's his idea, and that's how he just uh, re rebuts um, Heinemann's idea here for how Melech Olam ended up in the um, in the bracha. It must have been an internal action from the Chachamim themselves. This was their own decision. That's his opinion. Um, Let's move a little bit forward into a Tesefta. So this is a very famous Tesefta. The Tesefta says, and it's brought in the Gemara, right? In the Gemara, everyone knows, right? Blessed is the Lord of this piece of bread. So this is, comes from a Tesefta, which is a dispute between two Tanaim. We have, um, I think this is Rameir. Rameir Omer, Afilu Ra Es Apas, V'Omer Baruch Shabar Es Apas Zeh, Kamenah Apas Zeh, Harezu Berchasai. Meaning that that is a good enough bracha. Meaning that we have a Tana that holds that you don't have to say Baruch Hashem Okein Malchalam. You would be Yotze by saying a formula like this. 
Rubiosi Omer, a person who changes um a person who changes from the the fixed form of the halacha the chachamim fix is not yotze. Okay, so he agreeing with with um, Rabbi Huda agrees with her mayor before him. Okay, so this is this um, tanoic dispute that Heinemann mentions, where we find that already that in the time of the tanoim, there is a dispute about whether or not you have to use a standard formula. Now. We read through this. It's a little boring, but if you think a second time after you read this, you realize that in the time of the Tanaim, right in the first century Tanaim, the uh, Rishi second century. But if you look in the time in the time of the Tanaim, there is a matbeah shetabu chachamim. There is a matbeah shetabu chachamim in the time of the Tanaim. So they clearly have some sort of standard liturgical form of saying a bracha on food in their time. Is it Baruch Hashem Akeim Achalam Bari I don't know. Something very similar to that. There is already matbeah shetavu chachamim. Do we know if it starts second person and then switches to the third person? We also don't know that. But okay, how does Heinemann eventually come out? So he does a lot of very complicated grammatical analysis um, and syntactical analysis to come to his own conclusion. His conclusion is that in the time of the Tanoim, there were two principal forms of the bracha. One form was modeled on the biblical format, which we saw earlier. And the next was a new model. The biblical format was completely in the third person, meaning we didn't switch from the second person to the third person, right? We know that with the bracha switches from nochach to nistar, baruch Hashem, and then it switches elokeinu melachalam in the third person. No, originally there was one form, which was the biblical uh, uh, precedent, baruch Hashem elokei so min haolam ve'ad olam, or baruch Hashem elokei adoni Abraham, Many brachos began with Baruch Hashem, and they continued completely in the third person. Those are very useful for when you're going to do a relative clause, like you're going to say Asher, right? God who Asher Tzoticha Me'aretz Mitzrayim. Those those fit very well for such relative clause brachos, and then you have a a main a, a praise a, a clause after that. The next form was Baruch Ata Hashem with an active participle, like Goel Yisrael. Or Baruch Hashem Rofei Cholim. This was used according to Heinemann. It was designed as a chatima for the brachot. When you wanted to make a bracha well-rounded, when you wanted to make a beginning and an end, like it's called a, technically a eulogy, they invented this format of Baruch Hashem in the second person, Rofei um, Cholim, or Baruch Hashem Goel Yisrael with an active participle after it. Eventually, over time, these two formulas began to overlap and began to. Um, homogenized, and we came, we we eventually ended up with Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam. That's that's his view. I'm 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 drastically oversimplifying it, and I I, I would encourage anybody to go to the to Hatfila B'Tkufas Atanam read Parak Beis and Parak Gimli yourself, or even better, get the English one because the English one that he did with Richard Saracen, he did about 17 years later, and he did a lot of updates in the English one. Unfortunately for for um, Heinemann, I don't believe English was his first language whatsoever. Um, he often thinks in German and then writes in, in Hebrew or then writes in English. So it's a little awkward of a translation, but Saracen helped him a lot. And it's readable, but hard. It's a hard read. You got to do the reading. You know, when, when it comes to this kind of hard stuff, you got to do the reading. But that is his position. And eventually we came to this format of Baruch HaTashem because the, the initial biblical form mixed with a new liturgical form uh, were were used at the same time and began to uh, 
exist in harmony, and eventually they got mixed. And finally, these ideas of Elokeinu Melech Olam were dictated by um, the Chachamim, and the idea of Atta became normative, and the the, the idea of, of starting Baruch Atta was carried over from the Chasimah, and then it became normative, and this is how we have Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam. Now we can finally get, after we get to all the analysis of the Gemaras and the Teseftas, we can finally get to the theology. So, as I mentioned, the bracha itself is theologically complicated. All right. First of all, we start with Baruch Ata Hashem. We start in Nochach, as the Rishonim call it, in the direct, in the second person, and we move to Nistar. We move to the third person. So there's various different ways of understanding that. I'm just going to talk outside before I, I, I speak about the slide. Now, Budurham says that, well, there's two ways to relate Hashem. There's a way that we relate Hashem in His imminence, and there's a way that we, we relate Hashem in His transcendence. And a bracha tries to incorporate both. Um, the Ramban gives a Kabbalistic understanding for why we switch from Nochach to Nistar. And let's get to that in one second. So when we looked at the problems, when we looked at the theology, um, of, that was two shiurim ago, in the introductory shiur, we spoke about the theological problems of saying a praise of God, right? So the same theological problems that we have, let me just uh, admit somebody again, the same theological problems that we had when it came to the praise of God, we have when it comes to saying the word Baruch. Because the word Baruch, when we say blessed be Hashem, is a contradiction to a problem called divine perfection. Divine perfection is the idea, very simply, that God is perfect and has no needs. God is not missing anything. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our thanksgiving. And therefore, we cannot say that God should be blessed, nor can we say that God needs more benevolence from us or that he's lacking something that we should bless him, that he should receive blessing. So almost all the Rishonim deal with this problem in various places. Um, they deal with this issue about how do you reconcile the facts of divine perfection with the idea that God is, uh, that that the Chachamim gave us a blessing formula called Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, or blessed be, uh, you should be blessed. So let's review a couple of the obvious solutions. The first, which the Chinuch says very clearly in Taflamid, and many of the Rishonim say the Rashba in in Chuvis, Chilek, uh, Hey, Chuva, uh, Nun Aleph, the Rashba and the Chinuch and the Kadakemach, and, and many of the Rishonim say very obviously that this is not a verb. We are not saying uh, 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 blessings, upon, we, we bless you, God. We are not saying we bless you, God. We're not using the word Baruch as a verb. We're using it as an adjective. Blessed are you that God is the source of all blessings. The Rajba says that even more so, the word bracha is related to the word bricha, which is a spring. And a spring has water inside of it gushing to come forth. When we say a bracha, we allow this formula on a mystical level allows a blessing to come down. So if there was a blessing in the, in the Shemayim that was supposed to uh, come down to us, or there was uh, some answer for our prayer that was supposed to come down. If you say Baruch Hashem, this word Baruch, when we say blessed are you Hashem, it's uh, that you are the source of, source of all, all blessings. It brings forth from that spring. That's that's the the simple understanding of of it. Rabbi Nubachia says very similar to the Rashba in Kada Kemach. If you look under Baruch, he has a very beautiful 
um, piece here on what bracha means. Let me just uh, read a little bit here because I have it on the slide. He says, uh, let's see it here. Here we go. One second. As an adjective, blessed are you. Let's go a little further. Okay, or we'll leave. We'll leave the kadekemach over there. But he brings at the very end of this piece, which I'm not showing entirely on my on my screen, that bracha is not just related to the word spring; it's also related to the word berech. Um, which means me, and that means that everybody worships Hashem. So the word of bracha has multiple meanings. Blessed are you. It comes from the word of spring. It comes from the word of me. And it means uh, a praise of God, which is a worship of God. And we're trying to bring down bracha from Hashem. The Nefesh Achayim and the Balatanya, both in their respective Sfarim, they bring, if, I, if I'm, I don't have the actual sources in front of me, though I should go find them, they both bring a different, more Kabbalistic idea which is related to the Ramban, for what the word Baruch means. And they say that it's related to the word, which is in the Mishnayot, of Hamavrich et HaGefen, one who, who um, replants a vine in the shape of a knee. So the way some vines are, are planted is that when the vine comes out of the ground, you loop it back and you put it back into the ground in the shape of a knee. So they say that this is a metaphor. A bracha is a metaphor for what's called in the Kabbalah, Ta'aruta de Tata an awakening from below. Every time a person says a bracha, he awakens the ability for uh, benevolence or shefa or bracha or or whatever you want to call it to come down from Shemayim into our world. And this is the mechanics for how the world works. When there is a blessing uh, being, uh, when God plans to bring blessing into the world, it has to be done through the initiation of the human race below. And we have to say blessings to Hashem in order to bring that down. The Ramban gets very particular. He says, Baruch Atah uh, refers to Malchus. Uh, Baruch Atah Hashem refers to Malchus. Elkein Malchus refers to Teferes. And when you have a Baruch Atah, you don't have to add the Baruch Atah, the Malchus, because Teferes is already linked to the Malchus, which is before it. And anytime you, uh, th- basically a Baruch affects a linking of Malchus and Teferes. That's the way the, the Ramban learns this system. But one has to be uh, one has to be wary of one has to be wary of when he's explaining this kabbalistic idea that there's an atarut an ataruta de letata, that you cannot as as Heinemann once said uh, was it Heinemann no his Talmud uh, Yaakov Petachowski he says he says you cannot reduce God to a cosmic vending machine do not assume that because you're there's there are mechanics to how the world works that Hashem just doles things out willy nilly or that. Um, somehow there is no spirituality, there's no emotion attached to this, that there's no dynamic relationship with Hashem. When a person says a bracha, it's not just some sort of mechanical, hydraulic thing that you're doing, that there is goodness in the world in Shemayim and it has to push down. You can't you can't use this as some sort of, uh, uh, what's the word, arcade trick to bring down bracha into the world. When a person says a bracha, he has to focus on the words. A person has to think about what it is he is saying. You have to actually meditate and appreciate the bracha, 
not just in its beginning, not to just just the Baruch Hashem Elokim but also the part that comes after it. You have to think about the the implication of the words you are saying in order for that actually to effectuate any spiritual change in you, and by and 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 by um and by effect of that also any any spiritual change in the world. Okay, so that's so much for the our coverage of the bracha. Um, as we know, the Chachamim or Mayor says that a person should say a hundred brachas every day, and it became re- very much a a a huge part of Jewish liturgy. And next week, I keep promising next week we're going to start Brachot Hashachar, where we're going to see this in action. We're going to see the Chachamim creating brachos for every imaginable thing and giving us a life which giving Jews really a life which is marked daily by the recitation recitations of, uh, of brachot so let me end the recording here and if anybody has any shalot they can ask me actually let's not finish that um let's let's just record one more thing um i my father was pointing out here that the word baruch is all over uh, tanakh and that is true but one more thing I just wanted to add is that the there is one more investigation that was done into the word Baruch. This is done by somebody named Jose Fower. And we've been working with the assumption that Baruch is an either an adjective or a verb. And what Jose Fower says is that thinking that Baruch is, a, is an adjective or a verb is only possible if you're thinking in a language which is not a Semitic language. If you think like a, a speaker of a Semitic language, you would understand that the word Baruch is something called, and I kid you not, a, de, a delocutive va- a noun. This is uh, enough grammar to break my brain, but let, let me just give you an, an, an example of what a delocutive noun is. A delocutive verb is where there's a verb created from a locution. So if, uh, a locution is like a greeting or a salutation. So if you say... Um, uh, I'm going to welcome somebody, right? What does the word to welcome mean? The word welcome, is that a verb? No, it's a delocutive verb. It means that I'm going to say welcome, right? To welcome somebody as a verb is a delocutive verb because it means that you're going to do an utterance of a welcoming. You're going to say welcome. So a delocutive noun in grammar is a noun where the word means you're going to say an utterance. So halal, right? Halal is a delocutive noun because you're going to say halal. Uh, kedusha is a, deloc- is a delocative uh, noun because you're going to say kadosh. Same thing true is true. The same thing is true with baruch. In his view, the word baruch in the Torah, and again, it, it's worth seeing Jose Faur, F A U R, J O S E. It's an incredibly deep, very complicated grammatical analysis of the word baruch, but he believes that baruch is a noun. So this, this is going to blow your brain. In his construction of brachos, if you say Baruch Ata Hashem Elokeinu Malach Halam, it's Baruch exclamation point. Ata Hashem Elokeinu Malach Halam Asher Kedushanu Sulisivanu Al Natilat Al Yadayim. So I'm going to end now. Finally, end the recording. But if it's very worth, uh, very worth checking that out. If anybody's curious, because I, I really believe that it's it's a fun, it's a fun, um, it's a fun article.